The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. He's coming back. Duration of death, five minutes. Congratulations, doctor. May he be the first of many. Welcome back, Mr. Mallory. I'm Dr. Deer Mubarak, and we're anxious to hear everything you've experienced. What? What are you doing? Did you see colors or people? Look, I have to get out of here. It's vital that you don't lose the images of your death manifestations. What exactly do you remember? I don't have time. Untie me. Please, you must remain calm. He should be as weak as a puppy. I've got to go! He's not. I'll sedate him. No! You'll lose memory. I'll take it from here. But... You're doc dismissed, doctor. <sighs> okay. I get it. You want to know what it's like being dead? You take me to the Chancellor Hotel, I'll tell you everything. It doesn't work that way. That's the only way it works. I've been to the other side. Nothing you do can scare me. You want my cooperation? You'll do what I say. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 17, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, not right wing. Just right. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Welcome once again to another edition of Just Right on this beautiful St. Patrick's Day. Beautiful, sunny, warm spring day today, and Robert and I have picked a subject for you today that's sure to bring you down. <laughs> hey, Robert. <laughs> I, I think the exact opposite. I, I think so, too. Have but to wait generally, until I have to hear what I have to say. Yeah, well, when people first hear the topic, though, they go, ooh. And I guess our theme today is to be or not to be. That is the question. I'm going to talk about death believe it or not, for the whole hour. Yeah, there's enough to talk about, enough to talk about for several hours. Talking about existence and non-existence. Is death the end or is life the end? What is immortality? Why do we have this quest for immortality? And how can we make sense of the idea of non-existence? 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation or write us, email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. So, Robert, you think it's going to be a, a happy ending, do you? What I have to say, Bob, I think is uplifting. I don't know what you have to say. I think, I think it is, too. Yeah. Okay, but good. Let's see how... We, we haven't talked. We only had a very vague idea of what each of us was going mm. to talk about. But we are going to talk about death in a way we have not yet attempted. We're, we've already talked about, you know, the right to die and euthanasia and all that kind of thing, but we're not going to be talking about that today, are we? Uh, no, no, no. No? Okay, just making sure. Not on my end, anyway. Yeah, okay, I'm not. <laughs> uh, today we'll be exploring but a few of the deeply philosophical issues surrounding our attitudes towards death and what those attitudes might mean to how we live our lives. Now, it doesn't really matter if you do or you do not believe in an afterlife or in reincarnation or, reincarnation or in whatever other beliefs people may or may not have on the subject. Fact is, many people do believe in such things and different things, and they affect how everyone lives. 
especially when these ideas are promoted by organized religions and by governments. You may not be interested in politics, as the whole saying goes, but politics is interested in you. <laughs> it's not for nothing that the words death and taxes go hand in hand. It's also worth noting that beliefs in various forms of afterlife are not exclusively religious, but can also be secular, meaning that for many people a belief in a deity is not necessarily, though sometimes it is, uh, but not necessarily part of their afterlife belief if they have such things. Now, of course, it's not the kind of issue we usually bring up, but I have to really... The thing that spurred me to do this show today was listening to a rebroadcast by uh, a fellow broadcaster, Jim Chapman. Um, they did a uh, rerun of his own near-death experience last Friday, and it was really the first time, I'm embarrassed to say, that I heard the whole story behind Jim's near-death experience and the personal circumstances surrounding it, And which was weird because I was there. We were doing left, right, and center at the time. Uh, Jim had that experience. And when he was gone for the year, Tom McConnell came in to sit, for, sit in for him at CJBK, and it's ironic that all three of us are on the air right now in London on competing radio stations. Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that weird? Talk about a small world. But Jim's story was truly a marvelous story, and I thought Jim's story and his telling of it was superb. felt like I watched a movie after listening to his telling of the story. It was well told. Yes. And, but without getting into the details of Jim's experience, which I'll leave to his own account, it was Jim's purpose in telling his story that was the inspiration for our own show today. His bottom line message was that death is not to be feared, and to live one's life in fear of death or of one's afterlife is not to live at all. And I think that's kind of our starting point for today's show as we begin our journey from fear to some kinds of increased understanding. As at the end of today's show, and, and as we end today's show by examining what it all means and why Jim Chapman's advice about not fearing death is the right thing to do, even if you haven't had a near-death experience. <laughs> so... You know, death is by its nature, I guess, a gruesome, scary, morbid, and kind of yucky subject, really. But um, we do want to end on a positive note, one I hope that anyone can identify with, irrespective of your beliefs about existence and its meaning and the greater theme of things. But on our way to that positive note, our overview of death today will sometimes be serious, sometimes a little irreverent and humorous, sometimes scientific and technical. And, you know, a personal and religious perspective, uh, you know, and the biggest taboo of all, whether everyone wants to admit it or not, our inherent fear of death and of dying. And here again, it must be noted that fear can be both rational and irrational. The attitudes that cultures and societies and individuals have towards the reality of death has an incredible impact and effect on how a civilization organizes itself and either inhibits or restricts individual freedom. So for me, the issue of death is really one about reality and people's irrational fear of both. I've suspected for some time that the general fear of reality itself has some roots in the fear of death since, you know, the one inescapable reality we all face is our eventual mortality. You know, it kind of sucks, really. No matter how much we accumulate in life, no matter how rich our personal relationships, no matter how happy we might be, no matter how squeaky clean and straight as an arrow kind of life we might lead, death awaits each and every one of us. It is the great equalizer. Utterly unconcerned with how any particular individual's life was led, and that's reality. And that might be part of the reason people think there's a certain, you know, sense of injustice in life itself and in it's death. It's not fair. It's not fair, is it? 
Small wonder so many people choose to become believers because the payoff is potentially more profitable. Even in death, such people have, you know, behave like, fa you know, fantasy capitalists, <laughs> really. Eternal life, I'd vote for it. But is it realistic to expect eternal existence, however one might define it? Interesting article I found in the Free Press in the spiritual section on February 26th last month, um, written by Joseph Couture. Fear of punishment, wrong reason to believe, he writes. And I thought this was just an amazing piece because it's, there was a truth in it that I could really identify with because I've seen this so many times. And he starts, and this is him writing, and I quote, Punishment and rewards, it's the only terms children are capable of thinking in. If I do this or that, mommy will give me a cookie. Or if I don't do this or that, daddy will spank me. It makes everything seem clear and the world so simple. In reality, no matter how old we get, it seems few of us ever develop a view of life any more sophisticated than that. And, uh, well, then the writer Joseph Couture tells of an experiment. His pastor in a church had the congregation at his church try one day, and he writes, quote, The pastor told us to first turn to the person on our right and ask them why they were present in the church, and then to the person on our left and ask, left and ask the same question. The person on my right was a middle-aged woman who had a gentle and kind face that made her pleasing to look at. I asked her, why was she there in church? She didn't even have to think about her answer. Because it's the only way, she told me. Because Jesus is the only path to salvation. We all die, and therefore we all need to be saved. Her comments were both clear and concise. She made no bones about it. She knew that one day she would die, and Jesus promised to save her from that. Next, I turned to the man on my left, who was an older, well-dressed man with thin white hair. And why are you here, sir? I asked him. He looked at me carefully, as if unsure that such a young man either deserved a truthful answer or could understand. Because forever is a long time to burn in hell, he said to me. <laughs> Neither the woman nor the man asked me why I was there. My reason didn't seem at all important to them, and they showed little willingness to reflect on their own reasons even for a moment. But I did. I went away and I thought about it, for a, uh, thought about it a lot. Those two were there because they were afraid. Afraid of dying or of what would happen to them after death. There was no mention by either one of my two subjects about loving or being loved by God, no concern for their fellow man or anyone other than themselves. It was just about one simple thing, fear. It seems to me if there were no fear of death and no belief in heaven and hell, there would be nothing compelling such people to be believers. If there were no rewards to be won and no punishments to be avoided, for better or worse, people would be free to live according to their own beliefs and conscience. But then I came to the almost inescapable conclusion that for many it was a simple matter of a mathematical equation, the cost-benefit analysis of what, to, of what do I get out of this for buying in. I somehow think this misses the whole point entirely, he concludes. In, any comments, Robert? No, I think it's pretty accurate. I think that that's uh, the motivation for a lot of people's belief in religion uh, is uh, fear of what comes mm -hmm. after death, if anything at all. You know, he, he concludes by saying he thinks it misses the point entirely, and, and I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Um, fear and self-interest are as good a reason as any to believe in something for which you have no evidence, aren't they? I think the issue is not what compels people to believe in, the thing, in things that can only be accepted on blind faith, but what compels them to avoid real knowledge and reality. Because eventually, these beliefs can backfire on them. You know, they'll end up in, in fear of fear which is completely unnecessary, and it can be very debilitating. You know, 
Not surprisingly, and I've done, I've covered this on the show before, survey after survey, some of which I've done on the show, reveal that religious people, uh, people who believe in an afterlife or in heaven and hell, generally fear death more than non-believers, which is a strange anomaly, really. Or people who remain unconcerned with the issue of, quote, what happens when you die. I think the issue is not fear itself, but irrational fear. That's the main point. Uh, irrational fear is often a byproduct of ignorance, a lack of knowledge, or evasion of knowledge. Knowledge that contradicts any mystical promises of an eternal life. It could be a form of denial, I guess. I don't know. But it's interesting that fear is necessary. Fear is a survival mechanism. But when the issue of survival is no longer an issue in one's control, then, you know, what is there to fear? I think this is the one thing that people find who have these uh, near-death experiences and still have some level of consciousness because the one thing that disappears is fear because there's nothing to be afraid of once you're already quote-unquote dead or on the way to. But whether rational or irrational, we have to remember fear is not a guide of how to live or what to do to avoid the things we fear. Fear inhibits action, or worse, causes a wrong action or reaction. When individuals and people do not act to avoid the things they fear, they will instead, you know, be acted upon. A person frozen in fear becomes an object to be used by others, including political and religious interests who feed the fear in order to obtain influence and control. Uh, you know, H.L. Mencken, I remember, I've got some quotes by him today. We might get to them or not, I don't know yet. But he marveled at the fact that most people could not conceive of their own non-existence. As a result, he argued they invented things like religions and concepts of an afterlife, their way of saying death without saying it. And of course, this goes, you know, implies consciousness without form, the mind-body split, which originates all the way back to Plato. And it's, people talk about death as if it can be experienced, and you really can't. You can only experience dying. And of the two, one would think that it's not death we fear, but the physical and emotional pain that's associated with its process. And yet, apparently, it seems that that doesn't have to be the case. Um, you know, apparently, so many people actually fear death itself, as if death was something that they would have to experience and endure for eternity, you know? They'd have to sort of endure this state of existence. And uh, I think this, of course, means that such people really don't comprehend the meaning of death or have a belief that their consciousness will continue after death, um, uninterrupted by the fact that their consciousness uh, might cease to exist, maybe thankfully considering the, the myth, some of the mystical alternatives that, that are offered them. Of course, there's not much really you can say about the state of death that would be particularly interesting. Death is inaction. It's the impossibility of action. We can only consider death while we are alive and the fear and the, you know any fear we have of death only exists in life so you know if death is non-existence and I guess you could say we've all been dead before you know before each of us existed we didn't exist <laughs> it's pretty simple and in a very real way uh, we almost die every time we change you know if I look at pictures of of young members of my family going back 10 20 years ago those people don't exist anymore even though some of them are still alive you know, that very person, their personalities, the things they knew, the things they did, they do not exist, literally. Actually, physically you know? as well, because the, every molecule in that body is yeah. now gone. It's changed. So that's just a, a bit of an overview of uh, where we're going with today's show. Coming up in this next excerpt, it's actually from a fantasy show called The Lost World. And this gives you an idea of what we mean when you, when you see a moment of truth and not a fact. 
about what most people's fear of death perhaps is really all about. And we'll see you in a minute. So let me get this straight. You were dying. Then that mini person comes along, waves a magic wand, and brings you back to life. Do you hear how that sounds? You think it's a trick? An illusion? You saw the blade into my chest. The blood. What the hell do you want from me? What Osric said about your soul. Are you sorry you saved my life? No. Of course not. All right. Whatever you say. What? Wondering if there were any white lights, choirs of angels. Let it go. Oh, come on. Death must have felt like something. Like a blade of ice splitting me in two. I've never been more afraid in my life. I'm sorry. I'm... Forget it. Thank you for coming back for me. You think I did what I did to save your life? You don't get it, do you? I was a coward, Marguerite. No, no. You know, it wasn't death I was afraid of. I was not living. I couldn't believe it was over. My life. My life! What was it? Copy. And then... wasn't. You're not a coward, John. Just human. after death, or is this simply an unanswerable question? Well, you don't know the uh, uh, objectivist uh, view of the arbitrary, which is that if there's no evidence at all, it's neither true nor false, nor possible, nor impossible, nor unanswerable, because it's not askable. Uh, you, if you have no evidence, you can't consider it. You can't even say, here's my question. Uh, it can't be uh, answered. Um, uh, the same is true not only of future life, but of Shirley MacLaine's past life, UFOs that keep coming up over Texas, etc. All of that, astrology, you just forget about it. It's not unanswerable. It shouldn't even be a part of your... Uh, Cognitive consciousness. Now, when you talk, however, about life after death specifically, then that you can disprove by the fact that it's a contradiction of everything we know about life. Is life uh, without a body, without an orgasm, without a brain, without nutrition, without locomotion, without, without uh, self-initiated motion? It's, it's a contradiction of everything known of life. So it's... it's uh, it's a total, it's like a round square. But you don't have to go that far. It's quite enough to, to uh, just say, uh, uh, 
It's arbitrary. Goodbye. That was Dr. Leonard Peikoff in a podcast that I took from his website, and I think that everybody should at least visit Dr. Peikoff's website one time or another to see some very interesting answers to some very askable questions. In this Mm. case, it's a non-askable question. What can you say about non-existence? And that's what I thought of when when you called me up, Bob, and said, let's talk about death on the next show. What are we going to talk about? It's non-existence. Two sentences, all done. (laughs) You know, know, interesting that Dr. Peikoff talks about there's no evidence, and yet some people would say there is evidence. You know, yeah, uh, well, and that that they take as their evidence these experiences that they have. Yeah, no, I don't believe in an afterlife, and I realize full well that when I die, I'll cease to exist in every conceivable sense of that word. I really can't say much about it from my own viewpoint. So I'll talk about the afterlife and death and the soul only because it seems to be of such a great importance to many other people. But I'll talk about it from a starting point that I do know something about, and that is. <clears throat> life. We have ample evidence for that being an an existent. Mm -hmm. Life is a biological process. It requires matter and energy. Human life is quite complex biologically and is the result of three and a half billion years of evolution. But with human life comes an adaptation that is probably unique in this long continuum of DNA replication, mutation, and natural selection. That is an ability to think abstractly. With this ability, we can plan our behavior, extrapolate from observable data, imagine things which don't exist in nature, and with the unique ability of verbal language, communicate to others our concepts and thereby perpetuate our knowledge and our myths. When our concepts and interpretations are correct, that's when they conform to reality. Our collective knowledge progresses and builds upon itself. That's what we call science, and it's given us the age of enlightenment, riches, peace, and understanding. It's enabled us to go to the moon, and it's given us 3D plasma TVs. When our concepts and interpretations are incorrect, when they do not conform to reality, our collective knowledge stagnates. We reach an impasse which may take millennia to get over and recover from. That is a part of religion, and has given us the dark ages, poverty, war, and ignorance. It's the source of terror with the promise of 72 virgins in an afterlife. Human minds are built in such a way that they try to make sense out of our perceptions and experiences. It's almost impossible not to do this. Uh, yeah, I almost ca- I call it hardwired sometimes. It is our hardwired. Our senses are, are kind of hardwired to reality. We are evolved in that fashion. Looking at random patterns in clouds and perceiving shapes like animals is what is known as pareidolia. Now, this pareidolia, this creating something out of nothing or random images or sounds, has helped us survive as a predator species. All we need to see is a slight movement in the grass or a rustle in the bushes to imagine another animal stalking us as prey. And we can then take action to avoid it or to hunt it ourselves. Or if it turns out to be nothing but the wind, we can go back to sleep. Now that we live in societies and no longer roam the savannas, this ability to imagine has taken random and unexplainable events and given us the notion of the afterlife. You awake from a dream and begin to believe what you experienced in the dream as reality. You see a shadow out of the corner of your eye and imagine you saw a dearly departed family member 
a ghost. You have a near-death experience and see a bright light drawing you towards it, or you starve for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert and have hallucinations which you interpret as a deity speaking to you. When we study life using science, biology, physiology, psychology, or philosophy, we begin to understand that our own personal life is all that there is for us. When we realize our own place in existence, then it becomes easy to enjoy life and to live it to the fullest, knowing that when we die, that's the end, period, non-existence. And if you want, like you just said before, Bob, if you want to know what non-existence is like, just think of what it was like before you were born. It'll be just like that after you're dead, only for a longer time. When we try to make sense out of life by relying on superstition, imagination, dreams, drug or hunger-induced hallucinations, fragments of thousands of year old parchments recounting tales of vengeful gods, resurrecting murders and miracles, then we come to doubt our science and the reality it represents and infer a supernatural reality that does not exist. From these methods, we can incorrectly infer that life is not a biological process and that our personality and mind are not functions of a living brain, but something that a supernatural deity has gifted us with that will transcend beyond all logic and reason into realms that we have absolutely no evidence for, the afterlife, heaven, hell, or even a reappearance as another person or animal at another time, reincarnation. We have given this transcendental existence a name. We call it the soul. Now, near-death experiences occur with greater frequency now that medical science has allowed us to revive the clinically dead. By the way, clinically dead is when the heart stops beating and the body stops breathing. That's the definition of it. The brain still functions for a short time, although consciousness is lost after about 20 seconds of the heart stopping. And with certain techniques of cooling the body, uh, cooling the body, people have been revived with no brain damage after having been clinically dead for over five minutes now. It's during this period of clinical death that the mind starts to play tricks on us. Now, mind you, it's called clinical death, but it is not death. It's still life, and our mind is working, and it's playing tricks on us. We hallucinate, sometimes lucidly, as Jim Chapman had, mm -hmm. very lucid uh, hallucinations. In other words, we're aware of what we're seeing and, and experiencing. And when a person is revived from these dreams or hallucinations and is told that they had been clinically dead for, say, 97 seconds or however long that person often incorrectly interprets the dream as evidence of an afterlife, even though he had not actually been dead. He was still alive. Death, real death, is death that you cannot be revived from. And by definition, yeah. nobody has ever risen from the dead, except in fairy tales, to tell the rest of us what they experienced. Now, without any actual experience of death that can be communicated, without any data to go on. Well, you could also understand in the past in early cultures how someone perhaps having an experience like that could have been interpreted as death. It would seem pretty logical to the people of the time. Yes, because you know? they were living in ignorance, because well, they didn't have science and the knowledge that we now have to know that, no, that's not death. True, but, but it looks like They actually like thought that the, the mind resided in the heart or in other organs of the body. They didn't even know that it was in the brain. No, but they still observe behavior. For example, they'd see two people die, 
One stayed dead, the other one got up. Okay, that's the difference that they see. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't know that the one was just, quote, clinically dead because they didn't have the clinical knowledge to know that he was just in that state. So to me, what I'm saying is it's very understandable that people would come up with mythologies like that out of those kinds of experience without any intent of of misrepresenting reality in a sense. No, it was know? a way, our, as a matter of fact, it's, it's as I described, it's our way of trying to explain mm-hmm. the unexplainable. Sure. One person dies and revives himself. How do you explain that? Oh, maybe there was a deity involved, something supernatural, something we don't know about. Well, so, we always want to attach purpose and intelligence to everything, that's for sure. We yeah. do, yeah. yeah. So, without any actual experience of death, that can be communicated, because as I said before, nobody has died, really died and come back. Without any data to go on, we have to act as Leonard Peikoff mentioned and treat any question of an afterlife as not only an arbitrary, unanswerable question, but an unaskable question. Why ask a question about something about which no data exists, which contradicts all known science, and which is a contradiction in terms? A living death? Life after death? Or life after life? These are nonsensical, self-contradictory notions. Dwelling on them, Bob, has brought us irrationality, madness, and, ironically, death. Well, you know, I have to tell you, the first time I got asked that question was by my three-year-old grandson. And I don't think he was thinking about all of those things. And I don't think he was worried about all, you know, knowing what reality is. And it was a very natural question to him. Of course. And so I think it's a question that's not wrong to ask it's it should it's going to be asked it's going to be asked by every living person i think he's asking a question to... about his existence rather than his death though in an afterlife mm-hmm. what was that was that what he was asking you well it, it, it always comes in the form what happens after you die mm. you know and i hear from children to adult ask that question you expect there to be a, a continuum well there is an answer to it you can answer falsely and make up any form of <laughs> or you can just say uh nothing Nothing yeah. happens to you. And uh, for some people, that's not reassuring. Actually, that the question stems from an ignorance of the definition of the term death, doesn't it? Partially. Which you would expect from a three-year-old. From, from you know, a, a disbelief that one's um, existence can possibly end. You know, mm-hmm. like, like it, it's just an interesting psychological thing. And I think it's natural coming from our own sense of identity. And that, um, you know... Well, let, me, let me qualify Dr. Peacock's comment then when he said that it's an unaskable question. It's an unaskable question for any rational adult to make. Perhaps. I would think so. Yeah, if they haven't thought it through. Are we ready for a break? I think so. Okay. Yeah, we're, up, coming up, we have uh, something from one of my favorite shows, and I don't. And I know you don't like doctor shows, Bob, yeah. but I particularly <laughs> love House. So we'll be back right after this. Can't let you leave. I think you're still suicidal. I wasn't trying to off myself. No, that's right. You were just trying to kill the wall. I checked this box. Your next roommates are going to be Jesus and Crazy McLooney Ben. That guy never had a chance. <laughs> it's gonna sound stupid. Suddenly you're shy? You pooped your pants in front of me. It's one of the nasty side effects of dying. <sighs> Last Saturday, I got in a car crash. A junk driver came over the line and hit me head on. It was like slow motion. I saw these headlights. Then... So, 
Paramedics said I was technically dead for 97 seconds. It was the best 97 seconds of my life. Okay, here's what happened. Your oxygen-deprived brain is shutting down. Flood of endorphins and serotonin was released, since what gave you the visions. No. Believe me, it wasn't chemicals. I've done every hallucinogenic there is. This was way bigger than that. There's something out there. Something more. Melanoma with skin cancer. Technically, it's cancer of the pigment cells, the same cells that give your iris its color. Cancer. Why not? What else can God throw at me? Hail, locusts, smiting of the firstborn. First of all, it depends on how evil you've been. House. If it's cancer, it's spread everywhere, right? That's what's in my lungs, my kidneys. There is a chance by removing the eye, get the primary tumor, and three courses of radiation. That could, could, what? A few months? Years? More likely months. Any of your other doctors have any cheerier diagnoses? If they do, they're wrong. This is the answer. It's the only way to help you. I already can't walk. I can't eat. You're telling me that the rest of my life is in this bed, puking in pain. We can manage the pain. I'd rather just get this over with. I've been trapped in this useless body long enough. It'd be nice to finally get out. Get out and go where? You think you're going to sprout wings and start flying around with the other angels? Don't be an idiot. There is no after. There's just this. House. You can't let a dying man take solace in his beliefs. His beliefs are stupid. Everybody lies. Some for good reasons, some for bad. This would have been a fantastic reason to lie. Hi, Greg House. Why can't you just let him have his fairy tale? If it gives him comfort to imagine beaches and loved ones and life outside a wheelchair... There's 72 virgins, too. It's over. He's got days, maybe hours left. What pain does it cause you if he spends that time with a peaceful smile? What sick pleasure do you get in making damn sure he's filled with fear and dread? You shouldn't be making a decision based on a lie. Misery is better than nothing. You don't know there's nothing. You haven't been there. Oh, God, I am tired of that argument. I don't have to go to Detroit to know that it smells. Yes, Detroit... The afterlife. Same thing. Welcome back to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM. You're listening to uh, Robert Vaughn and Bob Metz talk about death, dying, the afterlife, and the soul. And, and Detroit uh, City. And Detroit, smelly <laughs> Detroit City. Yeah. Broadcasting live from the University of Western Ontario's University Community Centre. 
So the next little bit, I'm going to be talking about a little more positive aspect of, of dying and death. And it's for me, it's called the quest for immortality in a culture of freedom. Now, if we proceed from the fact there is no life after life and that this personal existence is all that there is for us as individuals, then we must turn to the question of how we make our life on earth a fulfilling and lengthy one. Perhaps this is my way of finding comfort in knowing that I'm going to die. Bob and I have been involved in a political movement over the last 25 years promoting a political freedom yet to be realized before. One based on the abolition of the initiation of force, one of justice and capitalism. Now this political freedom is but one aspect of what we are beginning to call a freedom culture, a set of ideas promoting not just political freedom, but everything it might entail once it comes to fruition. It encompasses science, innovation, progress, comfort and convenience, technological achievement, and art and music which glorify life, achievement, and beauty. In short, those things which make life worth living, and a life worth living is also a life which you would want to go on for as long as is possible. Now, longevity and health are goals to be sought for everyone and anyone who enjoys their life. With our knowledge of physiology and chemistry and medicine, we've already more than doubled our typical lifespan to 80-plus years here in Canada. Now, in the New Stone Age, the Neolithic period, 11,000 years ago, one could expect to live only 20 years. In classical Greek and Roman times, that was brought up to 28 years. In medieval Britain, it was 30. Every year, we learn more about diet, exercise, medicine, and genetics, and this progress in each of these areas is not only adding more years to our expected lifespan, but is ensuring that as we get older, we maintain our health. That's very important. There's also a correlation Excuse me. between the secularity of a culture and the longevity of its population. The shortest lifespans in the world are in Africa, where tribalism robs people of their individuality and freedom. The lifespan of people in very Christian societies, such as those in South America, is only about 70 years old. In the Muslim world, it's in the high 60s, ranging, uh, say, from 65 in Pakistan to 76 in Saudi Arabia. In the predominantly secular world, lifespans are on the average of in the 80s. The life expectancy of the Japanese is 82, a very secular nation, by the way. It must be borne in mind, too, that all of those uh, other areas of the world got a lot of their medical knowledge from that secular part of the world. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So even there, they benefited. That's right. So when you say that the Muslim world, they lived to 65 in Pakistan, it's because of the medicine and the, the technology that was developed in the secular countries. An Australian, 81.6 years, they can expect to live. Now, this is, a, this is a combination of male and female. Females live longer than males in every society. A Scandinavian lives to be 81, and a Canadian, 81.2. That's the correlation that I find very fascinating. Now, there's a minority of people who live in the secular countries who believe that we should not meddle with our fate as humans. They believe that we should die when and where their God dictates. Such people reject medical intervention when such intervention could save them. There's a great tragedy, and I think this is a really great tragedy, when these people become parents and impose that death wish on their children when they become ill. It's the false belief in an afterlife 
which compels them to die young. It's not too far removed from a young Islamic terrorist who kills himself and others in the false belief that he'd be martyred and rewarded in a non-existence afterlife. Ridding ourselves of the fanciful notion of an immortal soul frees us to pursue life with gusto, to protect it, to nurture it, because we see it as the only thing that exists for us. It is a precious thing. In doing so, in ridding ourselves of this, these notions of immortality, we see the value in other people's lives as well. People who grasp the finality of life are typically happy people, peace-loving and find joy in living in discovery and in gaining knowledge. They wish to remain healthy and live as long as possible. An entire industry is blossoming in longevity with major research being conducted in new anti-aging treatments, not cosmetic ones, but medical. Chemicals like antioxidants are being discovered and created which can slow the damage done. You know, to, Robert, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still waiting for an answer to a question I asked on the very first broadcast of Just Right. What's that now? Do you know that turtles do not age? They only die of, of you know, bad luck, getting eaten, things Is happening that right to them. And I'm thinking, how come we don't have institutes studying turtles and why they don't age? I think <laughs> Is there they something do. I'm missing there? I think they do. As a matter of fact, I looked up some research on the uh, longevity of different species. And turtles, they found turtles living to be about 120-odd years old, which is pretty darn old as far as animals go. And, uh, well, and the large tortoise and things, you know, some of them live yeah. even longer. The American turtle, actually, but, I think, is one of the longest ones. But I, I read that in Reader's Digest, mm -hmm. and I just it just struck me, isn't that... Shouldn't we be studying this? <laughs> well, yeah, studying it, Bob. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, for the purposes of... Uh, Great idea, Bob. Let's go out there and study that. If there's that. something in nature that exists that doesn't age the way we do, I'd be looking at that pretty closely to find out if there's any way it can be adapted. Uh, they do. You yeah. know something? As a matter of fact, there's a lot of research done on uh, longevity and aging, and what I have found on the Internet about uh, how to prolong your life, the most proven method is believe it or not, not just the chemicals that you take and all that. It's, it's calorie-restricted diets, very restricted diets. In other words, you take in exactly just the amount of nutrition that you need, no more, and you can live, you can prolong your life by as much as a decade with a calorie-restricted diet. Unfortunately, it's a lifestyle that uh, a lot of us, including myself, do not necessarily want to go on. Uh, genetic research is also allowing new treatments to cancer, uh, cancers and other diseases. We're starting to get mm. the handle on cancer, and we understand now things like the, uh, the length of genes and the telomeres at the end of chromosomes is um, a genetic component to our death. Uh, but there is a maximum upper limit on how long a person may live, even given all of the knowledge we now have on diet and physiology and genetics. It's the maximum number of times that the cells in the body can divide. For humans, this appears to be about 121 years. The oldest known human lived to be 122, and she was a French woman named uh, Jean Calment. She died, uh, I think, in 1997. But given all of that, even if our days are numbered, in the case of Jean Calment, by the way, it was 44,724, <laughs> living life to the fullest should be the goal of any and all who love this life and marvel at it. Excellent, Robert. We're going to take a quick break now, and we're going to take a sort of a conclusionary view at what this is all about. And we'll be back right after this. Good morning, Dave. It is now safe for you to emerge from stasis. I've only just got in. 
Please proceed to the driver room for debriefing. Where is everybody on? They're dead, Dave. Who is? Everybody, Dave. What, Captain Hollister? Everybody's dead, Dave. What, Todd Hunter? Everybody's dead, Dave. What, Selby? They're all dead. Everybody's dead, Dave. <laughs> Peterson isn't, is he? Everybody is dead, Dave. Not Chen. Gordon Bennett, yes, Chen. Everybody. Everybody's dead, Dave. Rimmer. He's dead, Dave. Everybody is dead. Everybody is dead, Dave. <laughs> Wait. Are you trying to tell me everybody's dead? <laughs> I should have never let him out in the first place. best of all possible worlds. Uh, certainly the most expensive. Isn't nature incredible? Uh, to me, nature is, the, you know, I don't know, spiders and bugs and then and, and big fish eating little fish and then plants eating uh, plants and animals eating. Uh, it's like an enormous restaurant. That's the way I see it. Yes, but, uh, but if God created it, it has to be beautiful, even if his plants not appear to us at the moment. Sonia, what if there is no God? Boris Dmitrievich, are you joking? <laughs> What if we're just a bunch of absurd people who are running around with no rhyme or reason? But if there is no God, then life has no meaning. Why go on living? Why not just commit suicide? Well, let's not get hysterical. I could be wrong. I'd hate to blow my brains out and then read in the papers they found something. Boris, let me show you how absurd your position is. All right, let's say that there is no God and each man is free to do exactly as he chooses. Well, well what prevents you from murdering somebody? Well, murder's immoral. Immorality is subjective. Yes, but subjectivity is objective. Not in any rational scheme of perception. Perception is irrational. It implies imminence. But judgment of any system or a priori relation of phenomena exists in any rational or metaphysical or at least epistemological contradiction to an abstracted empirical concept such as being or to be or to occur in the thing itself or of the thing itself. Yeah, I've said that many times. Boris, we, we must believe in God could just see a miracle just just one miracle if if i could see a burning bush or or the seas part or or my uncle sasha pick up a check <laughs> woody allen uh, from love and death uh, yeah i've said that many times <laughs> that was so funny when i saw that the first time uh, you know but the questions asked in that skit were a lot of the questions that you see on the minds of people and it's always the the thing about fear of afterlife, of quote, of, of what's going to happen after life. And, you know, I, I refer for our conclusion here, I think, to someone I've referred to on the show before. It's John McMurray, one of my favorite philosophers. Mm -hmm. and, and he has a different take on religion itself, too. He thinks that the religions that we've had in the world so far are really not true religions. He thinks religion itself has to evolve as a religion being, of course, a practice of man, a way of thinking. And he says, and he writes, you know, it's an old doctrine that religion is the creation of fear. He said, it is certainly true of all the religion that the world has known. And it is true of all pseudo-religion. He says, it's not true of a religion based on reality, on real religion. What is important is to distinguish between real and unreal religion. 
When it is successful, it convinces its adherents that there is nothing to be afraid of. Notice now that this might mean two quite different things. It may mean in the first place that none of the things you're afraid of will happen to you, that you'll be saved from suffering and loss and unhappiness and death. And that is the principle upon which a false religion is based, he writes. But it's not the only meaning that this doctrine can have. To say that there's nothing to be afraid of might mean that all the things we're afraid of that might happen to us, you know, that, that there's no reason to fear them even if they do happen to us. That's what real religion says. True religion says, hey, look at the facts you're afraid. Look at, look at them in the face. See them in all their brutality and ugliness and you will find that they are, that not that they are unreal, but that they are not to be feared. Real religion will save us from our fear but not from the things that we're afraid of. The demand for security is the expression of fear, and the religion that offers us security is a false religion, just like the po political party that will ask, <laughs> offer you security. And that's what he's getting at, too, by the way. A religion fear-determined is death-determined, and such a religion is the greatest destructive force to human life. We must then come back to the immediate problem of our civilization. Why do we simply watch our social system going to pieces before our eyes? Why are we paralyzed? Because we are afraid. Afraid of the consequences of any decisive action. That's really, I think, the fear that demotivates most politicians, really. They're afraid to make any decision for which they'll be held responsible. And he says there's only one way in which we can escape from the dilemma, and that's by destroying the fear that is at the root of it. Stop this stupid struggle against the reality of things. There cannot be anything real to be afraid of. In other words, you know, fear is caused by unreality and by beliefs in unreality. You know, that's, that's where the fear almost originates. He says it's not what is real, but what we think is real. Not reality, but what we take for reality that directly determines our behavior and so controls the current of our lives. And then from another uh, writing of John McMurray, he talked about another fear, and I think that's part of the greater fear, too, and that is, he says, you know, the fear of being wrong about things, just about being wrong, about knowledge. He says, you know, if you're afraid of being wrong, then you will have to be unreal. If you're desperately concerned about your beliefs being true, you'll run the risk of holding views that are unreal. That's why so many people want someone else to tell them what they ought to believe. They want an infallible authority who will secure them against the risk of error. Unreal thinking has no chance of discovering whether it is true or false. Real, or sorry, real thought is marked by its readiness to change its mind as the increase of experience reveals its inadequacy. Unreal thought refuses to admit that it can be wrong. It twists or ignores the evidence that is forced upon it. And I think that is an incredible conclusion to make, you know, from, from the, the part of the world that he wrote about. He's talking and writing before World War II uh, was just about to break out. And, you know, he basically comes to the conclusion, and it sounds like something out of a Beatles song, all we need is love. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but for him, he, he, I, I learned that love is not what a lot of people think it is in this context. Love in the greater context, when we talk about loving humanity, we really mean love being defined as an absence of fear. Those are your two motivators. You can either be motivated by, by love or fear. And so when you say that all you need is love, it kind of means that all you have to do is, is, is deal with your fellow man on a basis that is not fear-based, if you can. 
It is the absence of fear as a consequence of choosing to deal or not deal with one another that's the key to what we call a consensual relationship, isn't it? If you're afraid of the other guy and you agree to the things that he says to you because you're afraid of him, is that consent? It can't be. Consent cannot exist in an, in an environment of fear. And, you know, free societies have a myriad of laws prohibiting forced relationships, non-consensual agreements arrived at because of some threat of physical violence. Shouldn't that tell us something? And so no matter what you believe about an afterlife or eternal life or even the finality of existence itself for you, the bottom line is this, I think. It makes no difference to the rules and principles that we need to guide our lives on this or any other earth. Whatever the facts of death are, they are unalterable by anything, you know, we choose to believe or not believe outside of what we can see. If you accept that, and I know many people don't, but if you accept that, then you've taken the first big step to, I think, accepting reality. And so, I've sort of come down to a couple of simple rules out of all this, and three rules to live by, and they all have to do with this fear thing and how... how I can't, you know, everybody fears dying and pain. Those are natural fears, and they can be healthy fears. But I think you want to, like, my first rule is don't live, don't live for the future. Plan for the future. The future is the indeterminate. That's the only area subject to free will and choice. Uh, you know, and don't wallow or live in the past is number two. Reflect on the past. That's the determined. You can't change it. You can't alter it. You can only reflect upon it and learn for the present. Don't wait to live to live life or, wor or worse, don't wait for an afterlife. Live in the present today. Even if you believe in an afterlife, I would still recommend that, <laughs> just in case. Cover your bases, okay? Because there, you know, there's no other time that exists. Now, the present is the only point of action. This is it. We're here now. There is no more, you know, tomorrow or yesterday. Those are going to be today eventually and that's the point of action that's the intersect if you want to call it that because you know in the end uh, you know life is an end in itself isn't it that is the end anything else to add to that robert no those are uh, pretty wise words why don't we leave it on that on an up note <laughs> okay and i guess that's an end right now for us too of this week's chrw broadcast of just right so we're gonna make way for a new beginning for another show next week until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And, and, and religious leaders have been confusing us lately. It's really been horrible. Like, religious leaders tell us if we do good things, we go to heaven, right? And then some of them do bad things, and it makes me think maybe hell's the cooler place and they're holding out on us you know what i'm saying because they push heaven like crazy it makes you think remember growing up we don't really know what heaven looked like it was cartoons in a book right there's a picture of a long table with food and angels playing harps and, and then hell they never showed you much they showed you one picture the boiler room maybe that's the boiler room to the five-star hotel and casino where all the priests are gambling you know what i'm saying people pushing each other watch it buddy watch it you go to heaven oh you go to heaven